of doing table to help us um, is essentially a tool for discipleship, right? It's not the only way of doing discipleship. It's not all comprehensive. It's just a step-by-step helping somebody walk through a few things, um, particular new believers. But even after you've been believing for a while, you can still go through and go at deeper levels, right? And so there's four legs to the table, and it's in that little insert in your guide if you want to look at it. So there's four legs. First, there's worship. So when you come to faith in Jesus or if you've been believing in Jesus all your life, um, one of the first things you need to do is, of course, worship him. You could spend your life studying what it means to worship God. We only went through three sermons on it. We're doing three for each leg. So we're just kind of hitting the highlights. Um, But we want to make sure that we're engaged in worship and underneath his word, praising him with our time and our efforts and our finances and everything else. So if you missed those things, if you want to hear about what we preached, go back and listen to them. They're all on Facebook. The second leg is community, which is where we are now. This is the third and final week for the community leg. Um, So it's all listed there as well. Last week, Jerry talked about the corporate gathering, and I'll kind of briefly mention that. And then now we're kind of focusing on the day-to-day gathering of the church and community. The next leg is service, which we will begin next week, and then the following one is multiplication. And so we think that it can be a tool that's helpful to use to help people understand, like, okay, to be a Christ follower means that I worship God, that I engage in community, that I engage in service, and that I eventually multiply through discipleship. And so hopefully it'll make sense in the long run. If not, just bear with us. You'll get there, and it'll be okay. So in talking about the community, if uh, the world defines community as just a group of people that live either in the same place or they have a feeling of fellowship, results in you know, sharing common interests, attitudes, goals, whatever. And there's all different kinds of worldly community, right? And not all of them are necessarily bad. There's, there's countless types. There could be fans of a college football team, unless you're UT, of course, that gets together every Saturday and maybe you grill food and you enjoy the game together, right? That's fellowship. That's community. It could be a group of moms with kids of a similar age that get together regularly to spend time together. That is a form of community. It could be your kid's soccer team and all the parents and kids are on the team together. That is a form of community. And there's so many other kinds from online gamers like Andrew shared before and just so many other things, um, maybe weekly trivia nights that you might go to, right? And community is a good thing. It can kind of bring people together. It binds people together. And they're all good, but these are examples of worldly community. So then the question becomes, well, what does community within the church look like, or at least what should it look like? So that's the question for us. How is gospel-centered community different from what the world's community looks like? So Jerry gave us a definition last week of community. I don't remember if I put it in here. Hey, there it is. Very good. So this community definition that we have here. So because our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exists within community, he has created us to bear his image by also existing in a harmonious community for the purposes of worship, charity, accountability, gospel mission, and encouragement. So that's a lot, right? It's a mouthful. We're not going to go over all of that. And then, of course, it's, again, it's not comprehensive, right? You can spend a long time studying what gospel-centered community looks like, um, but it's a pretty robust definition that gets across what we're trying to talk about. So last week, he talked us, uh, Jerry talked us through what um, community looks like on a corporate basis, Okay. And that's what he did a moment ago as well, when he was talking about how um, the community was devoted to those four basic things, right? To the teaching of the apostles, um, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so that's at the corporate level. And we'll talk um, throughout the day about at the kind of day-to-day level, the smaller group kind of a level. 
But before we kind of really focus on that particular in the passage, I really want to back up for a minute and make sure that we get a bigger picture of what's going on and what God is doing in his church during this time before we can really get into those day-to-day. So what I want to do is to make sure that we understand um, what was going on at Pentecost, okay? That comes in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, which we'll go over in just a moment. So I want to really make sure that we get the picture of what God is doing before we can understand how it's laid out today. So Pentecost was, is a Jewish holiday that they, they use it to essentially celebrate when God gave his law on Mount Sinai to Moses, which happened roughly 50 days, I believe, after they um, left after they left Egypt. Thank you. Thank you. Jerry's like, come on, here it is. So after they left Egypt, right? So the word Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after. Um, so that's what they're celebrating, okay? And so another thing we need to understand about Pentecost and what's going on and just symbolism is in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, when God's presence was on earth, a lot of times he utilized fire to represent his presence, okay? You see that with Moses and the burning bush, You see that when he comes to Mount Sinai to give Moses his law, Um, and you see it whenever he's leading the Israelites throughout the wilderness, you've got the pillar of fire by night. You see it whenever he comes, you know, whenever they have the, uh, the temple, it's consecrated, he comes with his presence there as well. So fire, a lot of times, represents God's presence on earth. Now what's interesting is the original Pentecost, so to speak, when God gave his law 50 days after they left Egypt, well, when they're celebrating Pentecost in Acts, as we're going to read in just a moment, you see God indwelled within his people, right? You see that fire. So let's look at that. Look at Acts 2, verse 1 with me. I know that's really small, so I'm going to read it out loud to you. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So did you catch what happened there? So you had divided tongues as of fire rested on them. What does fire represent in the Old Testament? God's presence, right? So now, rather than God's presence being with the Holy Spirit, whenever God's presence being um, in one particular place, the physical temple, now it rests on God's people because they have been given the Holy Spirit, right? And so that's just an amazing thing that God's presence now exists within people. And so they are given the Holy Spirit and they are then able to live the lives that God has called them to live, which is a really cool thing. So At this Pentecost, rather than God giving his law, he has given his spirit, which is even better. We also see this referenced in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, this idea of us being God's physical temple. Even though it's speaking of sexual immorality in this particular passage, the premise is still the same. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So it's reminding us that we, as believers, if we are true Christ followers, if we have believed, we have been given the Holy Spirit, and now God's presence dwells within us, and we are his temple. And that is a beautiful thing. This has tremendous implications for God's church in Acts, and it has tremendous implications for us as Christ followers. So in the Old Testament, God gives his law on Mount Sinai. In Acts, he gives the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And it's because they have been given the Holy Spirit that they are able to live lives that God has called them to. 
It's because of the Holy Spirit that their acts or church is able to live out the lives that God has called them to. And then by t- in turn, it's also true for us as well. By the Holy Spirit, we're able to be an acts-like church. So with that in mind, I want us to take a look at what specifically was going on in this passage um, and look at the day-to-day. So if you'll pick up with me again in today's passage, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is a lot going on in this passage. So again, let's break it down. So as Jerry mentioned last week and today, the corporate gathering of God's people, they were devoted to the teaching of the word, the fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayers. So that's happening on a potentially weekly basis, right? That's what we look at as being God's people gathered together within church. Within the day-to-day fellowship, they're doing little small pockets of essentially the same corporate gathering. They're gathering together, they're selling their possessions, providing for those in need, they are breaking bread together, and they are praying together. So this is what the church is doing on a day-to-day basis, and I want to walk through that real quick together as as we continue to understand. So the first thing you want to fill in on your blank, if you're one of those types of people that likes to fill in blanks, the early church was together day by day. The first three blanks come directly from the Word, so you're welcome to try to guess and fill those in if you want to ahead of time. But they were together day by day, and that's what we're looking at. So the day-to-day activities um, of the church. In verses 44 to 45, all who believed were together, okay, that fellowship, that's togetherness, and they had all things in common. They were selling possessions and belongings and giving to those that had need. So I believe this is devotion to the fellowship that you see in verse 42. This is an expression of that devotion. Because you may have asked, like, what does it mean to be devoted to a local group of believers? Well, this is an example of that, this idea of, of providing for those that are in need. So think about what was happening culturally in this moment. Okay, so for, for people then, um, for the Jews, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Pentecost, right? So you have thousands of people that are there, they're celebrating Pentecost and what God has done. And so while they're all there, then you have Peter that comes along and he proclaims the message of the gospel to these people. And over 3,000 of them were saved by God in, in that one moment, which is an amazing thing. And so now you have these 3,000 people that had come and pro- probably just had only intended to come for a few days to celebrate Pentecost. Well, they're staying a lot longer. And they're staying there because they are devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to understand what their new faith means. And they're devoting themselves to this community. And they're trying to learn what does it mean to be a Christ follower now. And so they're spending this, this long season there in order to learn all these things. And they probably have run out of money, right? If you ever plan on going on vac- vacation, you're only going to be there for a while, right? And if you're staying for a few weeks longer, eventually you're going to run out of money, right? you got to work and have money to feed yourself. And so that's probably what was going on. They were so devoted to the fellowship, to the teaching of the Word, that they were staying longer than they intended. And now you have people that are from out of town who do not necessarily have money for food and lodging and clothes. So God, he wouldn't want his new church having people going without food and shelter, right? He wouldn't want some people within the church who lived in Jerusalem to be able to provide for themselves while their brothers and sisters are going without, right? 
And in fact, God has always cared for the needs of the poor. You can see this laid out in his law in the Old Testament. And you can also see this in particular in the book of Ruth. If you ever go and read that book, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So God, he told his people to leave parts of their field left for the orphans and the widows and for others who are visiting to be able to get the grain that they need to feed themselves, right? That's a part of God's law. And you see that in the book of Ruth. Well, now in Acts, you see God's church doing what God had called them to do, right? Providing for those in need, providing for one another. In verse 42, I believe Jerry mentioned it last week, but in in Greek, you have the word for fellowship as koinonia. No clue if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but we're just going to roll with it. And if it's not, it's okay. So you have koinonia, as Jerry mentioned last week. So that's the gathering or a fellowship or a sharing in common or communion with one another. So that's what the word fellowship means, this group of people together. When verses 44 to 45 is an expression of koinonia, as we already mentioned. This can be seen in the having and things in common, selling of possessions, and providing for those in need. Because the word of the things in common is koina, which is the root word of koinonia, right? So the, the fellowship, this gathering that's together, is lived out through this having things in common, having possessions in common. So you see the early church, they were so devoted to the fellowship of one another that even their personal items and their property, their finances were not viewed as belonging to themselves only, but instead were shared because they saw that it belonged to Jesus Christ and to his body. So if there were those in that fellowship that were lacking in food and possessions and other things, then somebody would take what they had, even if it was like their land, and they would sell it, and then they would give that to Christ's body to provide for those that had need. They were so committed to the fellowship of one another that if anybody was in need, no one felt the right to maintain their own property while somebody else was going without. So this is an expression of that devotion to fellowship. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a prescriptive demand for us necessarily, right? I think it's a healthy expression of God's church and an ideal that's worth following for us. Is it possible that God may call you or me or some or all of us to sell everything we had to give to those needs? Certainly it is possible, and he may do so. But I think what's more important than the physical action of doing this is the heart that's behind that action, because Jesus always cares about our hearts. See, God's desire is that in our hearts that our possessions are no longer so important to us, but Christ's body is important. Being a part of Christ's body, the church, means that you view your possessions and your wealth and everything else in your life um, not as something to be gained and held on to with everything that's within you, but instead it is all Christ's and it belongs to him, right? And so you can give that as an act of worship and devotion to him and to his church. So the early church filled with the Holy Spirit was free to give their things away, right? And we, as Christ followers, filled with the Holy Spirit, are free to do the same for others, to be able to give to those that are in need. In addition to having things in common, providing for each other, it says, day by day they are attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, receiving food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all. So in terms of the day-to-day, not only are they devoted to each other and, and giving and providing for the needs, but day-to-day they're also attending time together in the temple, which probably meant they were praying together. 
Because for Jews, they would go multiple times to pray. They would also regularly go in order to offer sacrifices. And now in the early church for these Jewish Christians, they no longer need to offer a sacrifice for their sins, right? That's what Christ did. But they were still likely devoted to praying together as God's people. And so that's what they're doing together on a day-to-day basis. They are praying together. Not only that, but they're also having meals in their homes together often. I got forgot about number two, if you'd like to fill in the, in the blanks. Number two, they sold their possessions and gave to any that had need. I'll leave it up there for a second before I move on. But so day to day, they're having meals together in their homes. And that's what this idea of breaking bread means in this section. And it's really, really important. And we believe that it's important at Redstone because we think that ministry happens around the table, right? That's why we keep talking about a table. That's why it's on our logo, right? We think that ministry can happen around a table because something happens when you have food and when you have drink, and all of a sudden we're now equal with each other, right? Walls are easier to come down because there's a sense of, of equality together and a place where we can be real with each other, where conversation can happen. And as a side note, a table was used, food was used often by Jesus in his ministry as well. And you see it in so many different places where he's having food with tax collectors and sinners, right? Where after his resurrection, when he comes to kind of reinstate Peter, so to speak, he has a meal with his disciples on the beach. And of course, in Revelation, we see when God's people are all gathered together with him in heaven, there is a feast as well. And so something amazing happens around the table. So for the early church, they are having meals together. This act of regular meals together was a healthy expression of being devoted to the fellowship. So number three, they attended the temple and had meals in their homes. So these people, they are changed by God, right? By being devoted to the word, being devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking bread, communion, to, to prayers, and by the fact that they are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, they have been changed, And so now their day-to-day lives are beginning to look different, right? They're like, oh, you have need? Well, let me give you what you need, right? Like, come come into my home. Let's have a meal together, fellowship together. Let's talk about the teaching of the apostles together so we can learn about Jesus together. Let's pray together. They are changed by the Holy Spirit, and they're living their lives this way. Through the Holy Spirit, they're living radical lives of generosity and joy that can only come from lives that are truly changed by Jesus in the gospel. And it has changed so much so that you can see it in that they have favor with other people, right? Even people outside of the church. They were seeing this early church like, you guys are different. There's something going on here that makes you guys different from the way that you were just a few weeks ago. And it's the Holy Spirit living within them. So in understanding the day-to-day, I also want us to make sure that we understand, because our tendency, I think, when we read passages like this, is like, okay, so my checklist is, I need to be devoted to this, I need to do this, oh, I need to have so-and-so over for dinner next week, so that way God will be happy with me, right? I need to make sure that I'm doing a better job praying, because I have gone all morning without praying, right? That becomes a checklist that we tend to do, right? And so the application of God's Word should come later on. First, before we ever get to that, we need the gospel. And we need to be reminded of the fact that God did it all in this passage and does it all in us, and he deserves all of the glory. Because that's the inherent danger for us in this passage. The danger is to think that we can do these things in our own strength so that God will love us. The danger for Redstone Church is that we will think that we can just follow these four steps and God will make us multiply, right? 
or bless us or make us look like some awesome early church in Acts simply because we're doing the right things. But what we need to remember is that God did it all. Verse 41 says, Those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So who is doing the saving work of adding souls in this passage? It's God, right? And you see it all throughout Acts as it continues to say, And the Lord added to their number daily. God is doing the work. Peter, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches the gospel to these people. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you have these 3,000 plus people that are devoted to the teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to praying together because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So it is God that is doing all of the work in this passage. He does all the work in your life and in my life, and he gets all of the glory for it, or at least he should. All of this is only possible with God. This is why we need to be reminded of the gospel every single day and every single Sunday, because otherwise we're going to try to live it out for ourselves. If you were to go back, and if you wanted to make note of it now, and look back at Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in 31, you see this prophecy. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it continues, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So this prophecy in Jeremiah where God promises to put his law on the hearts of his people, he fulfills that prophecy in Acts in the early church. Because they no longer need the physical law that was given on Mount Sinai that Pentecost celebrates. Now, during Pentecost in Acts, they are given the Holy Spirit. And so now his law is written on their hearts. And his law is written in your hearts if you are a Christ follower. He has done exactly what he promised to do through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And this is our only hope. Because without Jesus, then we're going to be resorting to a checklist of things that we're trying to do to be righteous. Jesus came to fulfill the law. That's what he says in um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he fulfills the law for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, we get this beautiful picture of the gospel. I think I've said this multiple times when I preach because it's probably one of my most favorite passages in the Bible. In Ephesians 2, it says, But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. 
So did you catch that? You may not have. It's a big passage. It's okay if you didn't. But because of the gospel, it tells us we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were far from Jesus, aliens and strangers. But because of the blood of Jesus, we are then brought into the family of God, right? We are reconciled to God. And we are fellow citizens with saints, members of the household of God, and being joined into a structure by Jesus, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together in dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. This is what happened in Pentecost in Acts, in chapter 2, verse 1, right? This is what we talked about. You no longer have to have the physical temple, where God's presence dwells on earth, because through the Holy Spirit, we are now Christ's temple ourselves, right? And God's church is where he dwells. This is what happens to you when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are given the Holy Spirit to dwell within us when we accept him. And so now together we are Christ's temple, us and other believers. And so we're able to be devoted to all these things corporately on a weekly basis and day-to-day in our lives as we gather together because we are given the Holy Spirit. We are his temple, his body. And as we do these things, not because of ourselves, we will become so radically different, not for the sake of being different, but because of the Holy Spirit within us, so much so that other people are going to see that and they're going to be like, I don't know what that is, but I want it because that's what I'm missing they will want a taste of it for themselves. You see, Christian community must be different from worldly community. It absolutely has to be different. Not for the sake of being different, but because God is active in us and through us to live these changed lives. And don't you dare fool yourself into thinking that you can be different on your own or in your own power, because you can't. And may we as a church not fool ourselves into thinking that we can check off the right boxes So that way on the outside we look really good while on the inside we're really dead people. Because it's exactly what Jesus accused of the spiritual leaders of his time. So may we not be a group of righteous-seeking, pharisaical people who look really good on the outside but are dead on the inside. Instead, what the world needs is for us to be a group of people that allows the Spirit to work in us and to be this people that God has called us to be to live our lives under the lordship of Jesus. And, and they're going to look at how we look, work with each other, right? To how we engage with one another. They're going to know us by our love, right? That's what the world's going to see. We can't do it on our own. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We can't do it ourselves. This changed body of believers is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 4. Going back to Ephesians. We should preach Ephesians sometime. It's a good book. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he continues, rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so as it builds itself up in love. 
So this, this is what Christian community looks like, right? This is God's people indwelled with the Holy Spirit, living in unity, devoting themselves to these things, and living it out in a day-to-day life. This is what the church in Acts looked like, where they were daily together, having things in common, selling possessions, providing for one another, praying together, having meals together. They were a discipling church. They took it seriously that they were supposed to take what they've been given by Jesus and give it away to others. I'm really falling behind on these blanks, you guys. I'm sorry. Number four, God did it all, deserves all the glory. And number five, they were a discipling church. Man, just get going. You kind of forget that's there, right? So they were a discipling church. And this is what we, whenever we define Christian community, this is kind of what we're trying to talk about. When we say, because triune God exists, or eternally exists in community, he has created us to bear his image by existing in a harmonious community. That's the unity through the spirit, the body of Christ. For the purposes of worship, charity, right? You see that in the early church, giving away accountability, gospel mission, and encouragement. Now, we can't talk about each and every single one of those parts of the definition, right? That would come later on. But this is what happens when God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit, devote themselves to his community, to his word, and to discipleship within that community. It's a beautiful thing, and God will use it to change your life. And I've seen and I've experienced this so many times on my own. It's just an amazing thing. You see, the, the old me, when I was growing up, I would have been very uncomfortable with Redstone Church, right? I remember one of the first times I came to Redstone, I, I went to Johnson City. They're only a couple months old, meeting at Trinity Yard Center, and we had a danger night. If you're in community group, you know what that is. If you don't, this is a plug for community group. You need to go, right? If nothing else, figure out what in the world is danger night. But we had danger night. Essentially, you were just being open and vulnerable and honest, right? And I remember sitting in this group of guys, and I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I am not about to open up and be honest with you guys. I don't know you all that well, right? And yet, God uses that to do amazing things in our lives, And I've seen community in so many other ways where people are truly open and honest and vulnerable because when you do that, then the gospel can be applied to you in your life. And I've seen it in so many other ways where there's been times and seasons in our life, my wife and I, where we were really financially hurting, right? There was times where I was like, there is no way that we can pay all of our bills and pay the house bill and pay for food. And the people of God, God used Redstone Church to be able to give to us when we had need. I've seen it in other ways where people are sick and they provide for one another. I've seen it in so many other ways. Jerry had, all, well, he's had multiple surgeries, but I remember when he had knee replacement surgery in John City years ago and a group of people showed up his, at his house after church because he's in a really hard season. We laid hands on him and we prayed for him, right? This is what the community can look like on a regular day-to-day basis. This is what God can do whenever we uh, allow him to live in us and to work in us. I've seen discipleship happen within community. I've seen people come to faith in Jesus within community. I've seen people confess their sins out loud and you know, receive repentance from Jesus. I've seen the word applied to other peoples. I've seen people live and walk together intentionally in discipleship with one another. I've seen friendships formed and tears shed and, and laughter all within community. You see, gospel-centered community is life-changing. And if you're not devoted to it, then you're missing out. You're missing out on what God can do and what he does through his people. 
So now, once you understand what's going on in the passage, once you understand the gospel, right, and that this is not a workspace, check-off-the-box kind of thing, then you can be moving yourself towards, well, what does it mean for me, right? Then it's safe to do so. As I said before, we have a tendency to start with that question. Like, okay, what does this passage say? What do I need to do? And it becomes a to-do list that we can do in our own strength. This passage is not a to-do list for Redstone Church. Rather, I think it's more of a litmus test for us. And we can ask ourselves, are we as a church doing these things? Am I, as a Christ follower, doing these things? It's not for the sake of doing them, right? Instead, it's, it should serve as an indication of how we are living our lives. And if we are living as a people that are filled with the Holy Spirit and seeking to devote ourselves to God and His Word and His community. So I've got a few questions for you. I think I put them in your insert if you want to look at them there. But some questions for you to ask yourself. Do you find time to be in the Word of God, both on your own and within community? That's on a corporate, weekly gathering. That's in a day-to-day life. Do you find yourself in the Word of God? Are you a part of Christian community, not only on the Sunday morning, but also throughout the week? And that can look like community groups. That can look like walking with a few other people in discipleship. Do you find yourself community? Are you in a discipling relationship with somebody else? Do you find time to have meals with others within the church community? Do you find time to pray with and for other believers? And remember, this is not a checklist, right? Because you're not going to do all these things in order to be more righteous. But instead, they're just a litmus test. They should, the answers to these questions should tell you, am I living my life filled with the Spirit? Am I living my life as Jesus has called us to live? Do we look like worldly community or do we look like people with their lives that have been so radically changed by the gospel in Jesus Christ that the rest of the world looks at it and sees what we have and desires it? God has created us to live in community as an act of worshipful obedience. To be a part of a Christian community is to devote ourselves to these things. Because I think that's what happens when the world sees true Christ fellowship and true gospel-centered community. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So do people outside of the church look at our fellowship and give glory to God for that or desire what they see on the inside? See, we take part in gospel-centered communities for the glory of God and so that others will see that Jesus is more beautiful than anything else that the world has to offer. And they will desire that, and they will come to faith and repent and be baptized, and then they will step into discipleship and be Christ's followers who are also devoted to what Jesus has to offer us. This is what an unstoppable church looks like. Jesus says the gates of hell cannot stand against his church. And why not? Because his church is the temple of the living God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and because he is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He causes his people to live in gospel-centered, harmonious community for the purposes of worship and charity and accountability and gospel mission and encouragement. You see, God's global church is unstoppable. And it's to that church that he is adding to daily. And it's not Redstone Church or any other church that are trying to do the right things. It's the fact that we get to be a part of what he is doing. We get to be a part of his global church where he is adding to his numbers. In gospel-centered community, it's, it's not easy. It's not going to be easy, right? The enemy hates 
Christ church. And he doesn't want us to live our lives in this way as we see in this passage. The Bible promises that persecution will come for those who are living their lives for Jesus. And you see this for the early church in Acts, right? You may think and look at this like, well, I really, really want our church to look like this. Things were going so well for them. If you look just a few chapters later, Stephen is stoned to death for his faith, and the church disperses, which isn't a bad thing because God is at work, and his word begins to go throughout the world, and his church begins to spread and multiply, but it came through persecution. So I'm not trying to paint this rosy, beautiful picture that come join a community group and your life's going to be perfect and amazing. You know, is probably going to have some really hard stuff happening, right? You're going to experience persecution in some way. But gospel-centered community has so much more to offer that you can't get anywhere else because we are filled with God's Spirit and He is causing us to live lives that He has called us to live. So what's next for each of us? It's a hard question to answer because I've tried really hard to present this passage as more of a litmus test, right? Rather than a follow all these steps and you'll get there kind of thing, it should be more of just a test to see like, well, am I living my life as Christ has called me to live? Remember, this entire sermon series is meant to be a discipleship tool, right? It's kind of a pathway to help me understand like, as a Christ follower, I should be worshiping God and in community and serving and multiplying over time. So I think each of us just need to ask ourselves, are these things true of my life? And if not, why not? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to live within me and to allow me to live a life radically changed for him? Is Jesus the head of our church? We should take heart in the fact that Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit, right? We should take heart in the fact that we can look at this passage and not think, well, this is just another bunch of to-dos that I need to do. Instead, we can look at and see that just as Jesus gave the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to his believers, if you are a true Christ follower believer, then you have been given the Holy Spirit as well. And because of that, you are able and free to live this life that he has called you to live. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. So as we kind of finish up, here's what I want to do. I want us to spend just a few minutes in prayer because I've given a lot of words. I talk really fast because I get excited and you need a minute to just process what God's word says and to ask these questions. So just allow yourself to sit before the Lord, to speak to him, to pray, allow him to speak to you. I'll close us in prayer and then we'll kind of open it up and see if anybody has anything that God is speaking to you through this passage and then we'll take communion together. So let's spend a few minutes just sitting before the Lord.